Good morning. So, just so you're aware, the best time to scare somebody is when they believe they are alone. I remember growing up on a farm. We had a horse ranch in Minnesota. And one of the things in this, in this farm was you had to shut the lights off in the barn because they were, you know, two and a half foot diameter lights that took five minutes to turn on and who knows what electricity they pulled, but it was a lot. And so one of the rules was you had to shut it off. But for some reason, the way out of the barn was like 50 feet away from the light switches. So you had to flip the switches off, walk through the pole barn to get out. And, and that seemed like not that big of a deal until you had to, at 11 o'clock at night, shut the lights off where not a person in the world would hear you scream if you screamed and hope that there was nobody actually hiding in the dark. There never was. But another time... I was playing games with kids in our youth group back in Nebraska, and I love scaring people. So we had this game, and the, the whole goal of all of the adults was to scare the children. Uh, we had no other purpose. We played like we had a purpose, but we really didn't. So this kid came into this corridor with no windows, and it was pitch black, and they're in there looking around, and this person was only about a foot and a half away from me, but didn't know I was there. So she turned around and walked back to the door. She was apparently the sacrificial scout if they needed one. And she walked back to the door, and her friend said, is anybody in there? She goes, it's just me. And while she was saying that, I snuck up next to her, and I said, and me. <laughs> she thought she was alone. She was not alone. This morning I showed up for getting ready for the sermon and, and I drive in the parking lot and there's a truck in the parking lot, which is an odd thing for 6.03 in the morning. But, you know, whatever. I pull in, go park where I park, get out, walk in, and all of a sudden all the root lights in this room are on. So I walked in and I said, Hello? Is anybody here? Nobody responded. So obviously that means nobody's here, right? Because if you were going to be somewhere to try to scare somebody, you would obviously announce if they asked, right? Oh, I had to go to my office and convince myself I really was alone. And I was. But when you believe something, like, am I alone? You can function, right? There's a passage of scripture that we have to ask if we believe. And if we believe it in a real way to where we can sort of take that knowledge and, and run with it and work with it and do things with it, or whether or not we just pretend like we believe it, and it's not the passage we're speaking about this morning. The passage that we're looking at to ask that question informs this passage. And it's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says this, In him, we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do we 
believe that? Do we believe that God works all things in accordance with his will, or do we believe that God sometimes works some things? See, we're going to have a tendency to say, yes, we believe that. Why? Because that's what it says in the scripture. God works all things after the counsel of his will. He works all things for our good, for those who love him or are called according to his purpose in Romans 8. But do we really believe that? Because if we really believed that, we stick ourselves in a rough spot because we lose all ability to argue or complain or rail against the passage that we're looking at this morning. And the passage that we're looking at this morning is for all of us in one way or another. We've just finished talking about husbands and wives and the way that our relationship together is supposed to honor and glorify Christ, to emulate, mimic, show who he is. And now we move from husbands and wives to children and to slaves or bond servants. Ephesians chapter six, verses one through nine. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Do you believe that God works all things after the counsel of his will? Because if you do, then wherever in that list of things you find yourself, God puts you there on purpose. Whether it's a child to obey, a father or parent to not exasperate, exacerbate their children, whether as a slave or employee under the subjection and authority of your boss or whether as a boss overseeing employees. God puts you where he puts you on purpose in that exact scenario if Ephesians 1.11 is right, which it is, and if we believe it, which we should. That's the starting point for this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons that we learned. Thank you for the reality that we have in it. Thank you for Christ as portrayed so that we can see him and know him. Lord, we pray that you would help us to not be distracted this morning. Lord, whatever has gone on, whatever things are out there that could pull our attention, pull our perspective, we pray, Father, that you allow us to focus on you and your word in this moment For those things, Lord, that are going on right now that do distract us, we pray that you work mightily in those things so as to make evident your power and will 
We love you, Father. We need you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Children are to obey their parents. That sounds like a really nice thing for us as parents, and it is. Because there's a level of authority that we've been given that we exert toward our children for their benefit is what we're supposed to be doing this as. But children are to obey their parents. What does that look like? Well, it looks like doing what you're told when you're told to do it. It's not very complicated. It's not easy because none of us like to be told what to do and none of us like to follow what we're told to do when we're told to follow it. But the concept is simple. Do it when you're told to do it. Slaves or bond servants are called to obey their masters. Uh, this, this word bond servant, uh, we, must, we must look into that a little bit because it's a word that's used frequently in the scriptures that we might not even realize how broad the term is. So this term bond servant ultimately comes from a Greek word called doulos. And this word doulos is found in some places that we wouldn't necessarily expect it. So what we have here is we have a person who's a servant, a bond servant of somebody else. Well, I'm really glad that I'm not a bond servant because they're effectively a slave. An indentured servant, you could look at it in that way. An indentured servant is somebody who, whose parents or whose, whose other controllers got a lump sum of money so that you would be working for them until that lump sum of money was paid off. You don't get really anything, but you're working off your debt. And in this sense, the bond servant follows like that. But if we jump back to Romans chapter one, we would read this. Paul a servant of Jesus Christ. That's not really a good rendering of the text. It really says, Paul, a doulos of Christ Jesus, a bondservant, a slave. So here we have the most prolific, well-known, authoritative apostle that we have. And he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Go to James chapter one, verse one. You've got James, the brother of Jesus saying, James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Most of the apostles at one time or another refer to themselves as a slave of Jesus. So if that's the role that they find themselves in, and now he's talking about what it looks like for a bondservant, in principle, that becomes us as well. Now, he does specifically say, obey your earthly masters as you would the Lord. So he's making some specific distinction and we'll look at that. But he's talking about this idea of slavery or bondservantness, not a mistreated slave, but somebody who has given themselves to the authority of somebody else to get nothing in return, particularly, but to work toward that one's benefit. The apostles were that, we are that. Well, we become that even as employees to some extent, in principle anyway. But both of these passages talk about, or, or paradigms talk about obedience. And, and we need to step back and answer one quick question about that. 
Is that what the commandment in Scripture says, to obey your parents? Yes. To whom is that command given? Children. As an adult, I am no longer in a place where I have to obey my parents. So then what is my role to them? If I'm no longer to obey them, what am I to do? Well, Paul makes it very clear. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Now, this is a new sentence with a new person in view as the subject. Who is the subject? All of you. There's a shift that happens as you become an adult. So kids do know that at some point you get out of the I must obey my parents mode and you become somebody who is simply supposed to honor your parents. But the hard part is you're supposed to honor your parents even as you're obeying them. You can obey your parents and be totally dishonoring to them at the same time. You can do exactly what they tell you in such a way as to dishonor them through grumbling, through complaining, through how you say things, what you say when you do it. Children, he says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now honor your father and mother. Because this is the first commandment with a promise. What is the promise? The, the promise, it's really easy to misunderstand because we take the promise and what we have a tendency to do with it in our culture is say, oh, I will have a long life, a good life in the land, which means I will get lots of stuff. I will do well. I will whatever. The promise is actually not so much a promise of what you will get, but what your life will be like. Your life is way simpler if you're not constantly fighting your parents, kids. If you have moments where you disagree or whatever, that's going to happen. But if you live your life in such a way as to defy them, to fight against them, then what you'll find is your life is way, way harder because your parents are the ones with the authority. So if they tell you to do this and you're like, no, I won't do it. And then it takes eight hours of being in trouble with your parents to finally do what they say. Do you know how much more fun you would have had if you just did what they said and then that next eight hours you didn't have to be at war with your parents? Just do what they say. Which is a lot easier to say to children as an adult than it is to say to myself regarding Christ. When I see things in scripture, instead of trying to argue against it, instead of trying to find ways around it, instead of trying to justify my own actions, just obey what he says. It's better for you. But what about slaves? Slaves are to obey. What does that look like? In the slaves obeying, they're to obey their earthly masters with fear and trembling. That seems odd. 
They're to do it with a sincere heart. Again, back to the honoring model, that idea. Do it because you're wanting to obey and honor Christ, not because you're just wanting to not get in trouble. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. And that's where there's a shift to pull us back to what the real reason is. So let's step back and ask the question, why obey? It's not just because you'll have a nice life. It's not just because you will feel good. Why do we obey? Because it's right for children. Because for the slaves, they obey because they are ultimately subjecting themselves to Christ in the process. So as we step back and ask and answer the questions of why, we come to the conclusion because this is what honors Jesus. That's why we do it. We don't do it because it feels good or it makes it look good for us. We do it because we honor Christ. It's right for children, he says. When you come to the bond servants, we do it as bond servants of Christ. How do we obey? As bond servants of Christ. So let's ask the question what of Christ? What of Christ do we see here? What of Christ do we learn? What does it mean to do this as emulating, as mimicking, as following Jesus? Philippians chapter 2 is an incredible passage. Uh, the things that, that he says in the first verses, if there's any encouragement in being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, then look like this, ultimately, he says. Putting others ahead of yourself. If you're connected to Christ, put others ahead of yourself. Why? Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to, to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Effectively, having this mindset, which you gain from Christ, knowing him, seeing him, understanding him, which is what? Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped and used to his advantage. So here he is, actually God coming to earth and letting go of his rights as God to act like God so as to accomplish something else. He didn't hold on to this position of godness to beat it over other people's heads, to show them that he was in control, to show them that he was in power, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what we have is an example in Jesus Christ himself. We have somebody who set aside all of who he was, all of who he could potentially or show himself to be. He set that aside and said, you know what? For the sake of others, I am going to humble myself and I am going to do as a servant what is beneath me. 
And sometimes we say, this whatever is beneath me. I don't want to do that. Everything Jesus did on earth, given the fact that he put himself in a human body, was beneath him. And when he becomes our example, then what becomes too menial? Nothing. What becomes too humiliating? Nothing. And now really we've shifted a little bit in concept away from just the obeying and to the authority because no matter what role we're in, whether it's children obeying, bondservants obeying, parents leading, or masters leading, we are to do it as to one who's honoring Christ. And what we see here is Jesus willing to humble himself and do all of those things so as to accomplish what he was here to accomplish. Jesus himself was under authority. Not only did he humble himself by coming to earth, not only did he humble himself by being willing to to put himself to death, the immortal, unkillable Jesus put himself to death, but in John chapter 12, we see that he subjected himself to a authority, an authority. John 12, 49 says this. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment to say what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me. Jesus was sent to earth as one under the authority of God to speak only those things which God has told him to speak as one under authority. So when we step back and say, I don't want to be one under somebody else's authority, too bad. Your master was one who showed that he was under somebody's authority. And that becomes our role as well to put ourselves under somebody else's authority so as to honor Jesus. And when that shift takes place and our purpose is to honor Christ in that, not just do a thing or get a paycheck or not get in trouble with our parents, then all of a sudden our goals shift. I want to honor my parents. I want to honor my boss. Why? Because that honors Jesus. But we've only talked about one half of this. The children obeying, the bond servants obeying. What about those in authority? Parents or fathers talked about particularly in chapter six. Fathers do not, fathers do not Provoke your children to anger. You know what I have the ability to do? Wield my authority to my children in such a way as frustrate them to where I know they will disobey me. And sometimes in my brokenness and frustration with them, I kind of want to. Because I can put them in a place where they deserve to be in trouble. But that's wrong. 
That's my own sinfulness, my own pride, my own wanting to use the authority that I have as a weapon instead of as a protector. And I am supposed to take the strength and power and position and authority that I have and use it to protect my children, which sometimes means telling them exactly what to do because anything deviating from that is going to get them in trouble. But it is not so that I can show them how much stronger I am than they are. Masters, stop your threatening. What does that imply? That they're threatening their servants. What does it mean to threaten? It means to say, do what I tell you or I'm going to destroy you in one way or another. Now you're trying to coerce obedience, not because it's right or because you have a position, but because you're scaring them. Same thing is true with the parents. If your goal is to scare your children into compliance, you're putting them in a position where they almost can't honor you because they're terrified of you. And if we're going to follow, honor, look like Christ, then we are going to have to set aside some of those things and say, no, in the way that Jesus led, I want to lead. The way that did what? The way that sacrificed himself for us. The way that set aside his prerogatives, abilities, use of his gifts. He never set aside his divineness. He was always God. But he set aside the use of those divine gifts so that he could save us. As leaders, that's what we're to do. As followers, we're to obey in such a way that Jesus is most honored, most glorified. Not does this honor Jesus, but does this honor Jesus the most? In the way that I talk about my boss when they're not around. In the things that I say under my breath that my parents can't really hear. In the way that I talk to my children to get them to do what I want. In the way that I engage with those that are under my authority to accomplish my purpose. What honors Jesus the most? And if we ask that question, and if we answer that question, and we live in such a way as to follow the answer to that question, we will find that we look like different people than the people around us. Because we're not simply staying out of trouble, we're staying in the most honoring thing that we can do. We started this whole section back in chapter four, talking about putting off the old self and putting on the new self, right? The first three chapters of Ephesians are about our identity in Jesus, who he says we are. Halfway through chapter four, we move not just to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, but to put off our old self and to put on our new self. And as he's gone through this, he's shown us what it looks like. And now he culminates this section by saying, children, obey your parents 
Slaves obey your masters, but parents make sure you're functioning in such a way that you should be obeyed. And masters make sure you're functioning in such a way that you should be obeyed because, oh, by the way, masters, keep in mind, your master is theirs as well because you have one. And in case we forget as we come to some of this, when we get to Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And this is a verse we should all just memorize. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, which doesn't mean God's not made fun of mocked in that sort of way. Because he is all the time. People use his name in vain. They say things about him. They make fun of him. So what does it mean that God is not mocked? It means that God is not made a fool of. You are not going to trick God. My kids can trick me. I don't always know what their motives are. My kids can trick me. I don't always hear the words that they say. God does. Employees can be tricked because they don't know the motives of the boss. God is not mocked. He knows the truth. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Follow your people. Lead your people. Whatever realm that's in, in such a way that Christ is most honored in the way that you do that, in every word that you say, in every action you take, in everything that you think about them, in your evaluations of people. Do it in such a way that Christ is most honored in you. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Masters, don't be threatening. Lead because if you're a boss, lead in such a way as because you hold authority, not because you wield authority. Get people to want to follow you. Parents, show your children why what following you is and why that's the best thing to do. If you don't have a reason for why it's the best thing, you might want to rethink what you're telling them. Children, submit yourselves to Christ by obeying your parents Employees, servants, submit yourself to Christ by obeying your boss, honoring all the time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for giving us your son. Lord, our need for you is greater than we could ever state, imagine, Hope to understand. Give us, Father, a deeper and deeper insight into Christ himself as we follow and as we lead. We do love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.